Hey everyone, welcome to Bible Discoveries, the weekend show. So on this program, we are reading through the Bible. We, you know, through Bible Discovery, we're reading through the Bible this year. And so on this program specifically, we aim to discuss big questions that pop up when we're reading through the Bible. And we also aim to discuss some of your questions as well. So if you have questions about the Bible related to the Bible, pop them down in the comment section or email us at hello at BibleDiscoveryT.com because we love an opportunity to discuss your question. I just think it's really interesting to get an insight into other Christian, uh, you know, and even non-Christian uh, thoughts as they're reading through the scriptures. I think it's really interesting and it's always good to challenge each other with our ideas and with our, our questions about the scripture. But anyway, if this is your first time here, my name is Corey and I'm joined by Matlock, my husband. Hey, Matlock. How you doing? Good. Do you want to let everyone know what yes. scripture we we're, were supposed to cover this week? Yes, we are going through Psalm 19 to Psalm 49. Yeah, so, so a lot, a lot of, Psalms. of Psalms. We're in Psalms a lot of for Psalms. a while. It's always Psalms for yes. a while. And which means less viewer questions because there's not very, uh, usually not very many questions regarding the Psalms. Yeah, that is right. true. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be incorporating some other topics as well and some other Bible questions as well. So it's going to be a fun time, I yes. think. On today's program, we're focusing mostly on the Psalms. We're going to be discussing a, a big question about, you know, life application and, and how to utilize the Psalms in our Christian lives. We're also going to be taking a look at some practical things. Like, why is the book of Psalms divided into four books? We're going to be asking questions of some of the theology of the Psalms that claim that God doesn't care about sacrifices and offerings. We're going to be taking a look at biblical attitudes to unanswered prayer and all of these kinds of things coming up on the show today. Right now. Right now. And I'll like, launch like off. Right now. <laughs> like right this very second. Right at this yeah. very second, the questions are coming. Not to correct you. But to correct you, oh, please, there's five books do. in the Psalms, not four. Oh, sorry. No, that was sorry. a misspoke. Mm. I know you misspoke, but... I misspoke. Yeah, that was five. a misspoke, but yeah, you know what I'm saying. I misspoke <laughs> saying, claiming you didn't misspeak. It's all right. Yeah. We're fine. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's do it. First question <laughs> regarding all of the Psalms. Why are the Psalms divided into five books? Right. Okay, so these are collections. I think the simple answer is just to see the book of Psalms as collections of... So, so the book of Psalms in, in the time of David, it's not as if David wrote the entire book of Psalms. We know that he didn't. But, um, but as time went on in ancient Israel, more songs were added and more songs were collected. For example, in one of the books, it's a, it, the, the, the headline in the book, the superscript, is that it was the men of Hezekiah's court who collected these specific Psalms and added them to the official book of Psalms in Jerusalem and these became canonized. They became part of scripture. So there was a lot of writing that was going on, even going back, to, you know, we, we get the impression that Hezekiah's court even had to go back down into the records of ancient Israel and finding some of the Psalms of David that weren't included in the official book of the Psalms and, and added to it. So yeah, I, this is just helpful to see as collections uh, from different time periods in Israel's history uh, and, uh, and, and perhaps arranged thematically as well, which is an interesting way to take a look at these books. But yeah, that's what I would say. I think it's a good answer. Yeah. I have no answer because I don't know why. But I will say this. Um, typically, when people divide things up, even though like, you, you know, they have like Psalms of praise, you have Psalms of lament, mm -hmm. you have, um, you know, Psalms of penitence, a whole bunch of different varieties, Psalms of, of, of wisdom, because you have a variety of different songs. I like to say when anything's clean cut, here's all the wisdom stuff, here's all this. 
you because they're being read out loud, you might want to have a variety. Can you think about it musically? You have a variety of different notes, a variety of different um, themes that are built into one book. That and if you read them, you know, in order, it creates a pathway of thought or a, a pathway of meditating on them that you wouldn't have otherwise if you just grouped them all together, let's say, in one thing. So I think that you can create groups uh, thematically that might help. That's one possibility. The other possibility is just chronological. Um, it could just be chronologically, but besides they that. They are thematically arranged. Right. Like they are definitely, when you take a look at the at the books of Psalms, they are compiled thematically. Right. Which makes a lot of sense because you th when you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, why would Hezekiah feel the need to add to the book of Psalms? Well, when you look at Hezekiah's reign, he's in a very specific time right. where he's trying to organize He's trying to, to re-rally Judah and Jerusalem to the true worship of God. And so there's, uh, so he's, he's collecting Psalms with a specific theme right. to lead the people. So there, there definitely is thematic arrangement right. when it comes to the book of Psalms. And also Psalm 90, I think, is a song of, Psalm of Moses. Yep. So you can't really have that chronologically. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, not so, chronological order. It's right. not as yeah, if, really yeah, because work. some right. of the, the, some of the later, collection of psalms still contains psalms of yes. david but they contain songs so, psalms written by others yes. later on as well so yeah <laughs> that was for some reason that was hard yeah. for my mouth to yeah. process that's okay all right know. so i'll move on i think you pretty much answered it that's a really quick response i think that's good because we, we don't know why for certain but we do know why people arrange things thematically anyway so we think that it, that probably nails it on they that. had purposes they were being used in the temple worship right that's Makes right sense all right next question i'll ask you how is it Moses commanded Old Testament sacrifices, for instance, it's ex uh, Exodus 29, mm -hmm. verse 18, but others, even God, deny them? For instance, Psalm 40, verse 6, Psalm 51, verse 16, Isaiah 1, verses 11 to 15, Jeremiah 6, verse 20, and Hosea 6, verse 6. What is the point of asking for sacrifices if God does not, uh, not then want to receive them? This is a question from Hannah. Right. Okay, okay, Hannah, I'm just switching to some of those references that you provided. I think the easiest one is probably Psalm 51 as a as an example of what we're dealing with here. So um, Moses did command Old Testament sacrifice. Uh, God commanded the Israelites to sacrifice through Moses. It's not as if Moses was originating these words himself. He was acting as an arbiter, a go-between between God and the people. So yes, Moses commanded Old Testament sacrifice at the command of God, um, which we see all over Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's God speaking through Moses, who was a prophet of God, uh, a, a, a very important prophet of God. But so then so then the question becomes, well, why then can the psalmist say, why can David say things like sacrifice and offering you do not desire or I would bring it? So when we get into Psalm 51, um, the superscript of Psalm 51, it's pretty famous, but it says, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And it wasn't just adultery that he had committed. He had also committed murder and fraud. Right? So really, really bad things here. So this is a psalm crying out for mercy. It's repentance and mercy from David. Verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me 
from my sin. Um, and I will, I will jump down, but that just gives you kind of a flavor. He's asking for God's mercy and for forgiveness. Uh, he, he asks for God's Holy Spirit not to be taken away from him, uh, which remember he saw what that looked like. Remember with King Saul, David personally saw what it looked like when the Holy Spirit of God was removed from someone uh, and, and it didn't look good. So he he comes down and, and he says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. So David is is talking about that connection between reality and and sacrifice as well. So sacrifice was an outward expression of something that needed to happen inwardly. We know that David did sacrifice to God. We see that recorded in Samuel and in the book of Kings. We see David offering sacrifices to God. But what David is tapping in, into here is that it has to be more than just a physical act. It also has to be one inwardly. And even Moses himself connected this in the end of Deuteronomy. And I, I will find the scripture reference, but at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses talks about how the circumcision, the physical circumcision of the flesh needed to be a circumcision of the heart of the person. So not just that your body outwardly was physically changed, but it needed to be that your life inwardly was physically changed for God as well. Because remember, you can offer sacrifice, you can do the right things for the wrong reasons. We can act things out in the physical that don't represent the reality of what's going on internally. And that's what David is tapping in here too. Think about all the times when King Saul offered sacrifices to God. I mean, at the end of his life, uh, I believe it's in 1 Samuel 21, Saul is offering sacrifices to God to um, inquire of God. So when the kings of Israel inquired of God, they would offer a sacrifice and then they would expect to hear from God. We see King Solomon doing this at the high place in Gibeon where the tent tabernacle was. He sacrifices to God and then he goes to sleep and God appears to him in a dream. So there was this sacrifice and then a waiting for the response of God. So Saul sacrifices, but God does not respond to Saul because Saul is not repentant. He, he has rejected God and so God has rejected him and then Saul ends up going to a medium, right? Uh, so, so it couldn't just be a physical act. It also needed to have an inward reality attached to it. Is there anything you want to add to that as well, I'm, I want to check out the Hosea one and the... Yeah, I got them listed here too, if you want me to read them. But essentially it's just because God wants you to have an inward sacrifice of your heart, it doesn't mean that negates the outward expression of it that God commanded. Right. It so, was still important. You're it right. was still important. And there's a reason for that, right? You can't, if everything's just inward, 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 you're not actually expressing anything. You know, what is it? James, James, James talks about that just being useless. It's like things mm -hmm. have to express themselves. You inherently, like when something's a symbol, if the animals, you know, Paul talks about the Old Testament laws being a shadow of things to come. The substance is Christ. Right. So Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. These animals, the Lamb of God, right, are examples or archetypes or, um, they point to the symbols of Christ who is good to come. So that's important because you need to have those symbols there, that sacrifice before the ultimate sacrifices do occur. Yeah. Um, so that's like why have sacrifices. The other thing too is, is like in principle, we are to be a living sacrifice. So you need to have sacrifices in place to know what that means. What does that look like? 
So you have a, a, a you see what I'm saying? So it's like Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. So we know what that looks like. But back then there was no Christ in the Old Testament time. So these are examples, are shadows of what we're supposed to be. Our heart is supposed to be sacrificed. That doesn't mean don't express that. That means no, follow through on God's commands also. Yeah. But yeah, so go ahead. Yeah, no, I think, um, Hannah, the other the other scripture references that you provided actually really help to flesh out this concept. So you quoted Isaiah 1 verse 11 and Hosea 6 verse 6. Now, so these are prophets living during the time period of the kings of Israel, and they indicted the people of Israel and Judah for God. So um, Isaiah chapter 1 is all about how rebellious Judah and Jerusalem and Israel have been against God's covenant. Um, <clears throat> so uh, God, God through Isaiah in verse 10, he compares Israel and Judah to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how evil they have become. It says this, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah, the multitude of your sacrifices. What are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Uh, and your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. That's an ironic statement. Very ironic. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They, Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So what Isaiah is, what God through Isaiah is tapping into here is that, and, and it shows up later. I mean, in Isaiah 28, when, when Isaiah is talking, I think it's 28, when he's talking about fasting, the people are fasting, but it's all for naught because the people are engaged in idolatry. So they're playing both sides of the fence here. They're saying, oh yeah, we're going to keep our covenant with God, but we're also going to worship Molech. We're also going to worship Baal. We're also going to worship the gods of the Ammonites. We're also going to do whatever the heck we want to do. But that, all of those things are breaking the covenant of God. So that renders the sacrifices and offerings worthless. You can't have one without the other. God requires obedience to his moral law and it, it, for there to be an expression of the cost and of sin. So you can't just be expressing, you can't just be going through the motions 
And I mean, later on in Isaiah chapter one, he references it as prostitution. You're, you're supposed to be married to me, but you're prostituting yourself to this. You come back and you give me sacrifices and you think that that takes away your prostitution that you're willingly engaged in? I don't think so. And to add to this too, it's, and he's also not saying, oh, like I don't want these sacrifices at all. Like in the sense of that, like God's saying, look, I want your the sacrifice to be fully complete. I need you to f- sacrifice your heart and then sacrifice the the animal, as I said. So it has to follow be through real. in the command. It has to be real. It has to be meaningful. It can't just be in vain. You're not paying me lip service because he charges the uh, people. The, the prophets charge the people for this, doing this all the time. Yeah. Basically, saying things with their lips and not meaning it in their heart on a regular basis, right? Just yes. going through the motions, and that's a very dangerous thing because that's very legalistic. At the same time, what God's also not saying is, I don't want you to follow through on my commands. Yeah. He's not saying just feel it and that's good. You yeah. feel like you sacrificed in your heart and that's all you need to do. God's like, no, you actually have to follow through on this. And there's a good reason why. It might be above your ways. You might not know it yet, uh, but you have to follow through in the commands. But because the people are treating God as if he's like the other gods of the land. Right. The other gods of the land needed food. And so they they wanted... They, 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 you needed to give them the best of your food and then kind of make it, make it cross over the boundary from physical to spiritual by burning it. And, and then because you're providing for the physical needs of that God, that God can then take care of your land. But that's not, that was never the reasoning behind the offerings and sacrifices of no. God. The, the offerings and sacrifices of God were for sin. It wasn't because, it wasn't as if God needed the people to feed him. And he he talks about that a lot, how if he needed food, his, the whole world was his. He could just take what he wanted. Um, so the people are treating God as if he is a lesser God. And they're trying to have the covenant while also breaking the covenant, basically thinking God is stupid, that he's going to keep the covenant because just because they're keeping up his sacrificial system. Right. So it has to be real. It has to come from, you either follow the whole covenant or you follow none of the covenant. You either follow the law or you break the law. There is no in-between. And Israel was was playing that in-between, which is why God can say those statements and why, you know, David recognized that. He recognized that, you know, God... God wasn't just some bestial God that, that just, you just needed to sacrifice to and it would be fine. No, there needed to be an element of reality and repentance in the offerer's heart. Yes. Right, so good. I feel like I, we, we really beat that one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hope that's I think, I think that makes sense. And I hope yeah. we didn't talk too long on that one. Okay, Matlock. Right. Yeah. Psalm 19. I see it. Psalm 19 is a really interesting psalm. It so, is. what's the deal with Psalm 19? What is its significance? Um, specifically, I want to kind of get into general and special revelation. Okay. So, how about I just read it? I know everyone's reading it this week. Please but do. I'll just read Psalm 19, half of it, and I'll stop and keep going. Okay. So, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of all the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and, like a strong man, runs its course with joy. It, its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Okay, long story short, 
he then after this goes into God's law. So the first half of Psalm 19 is talking about general revelation, which is how God reveals who he is in nature. So um, an easy, uh, the most common thing people reference typically is uh, Romans 1 and Romans 2. With uh, people, it's plain to them. People know uh, God's divine attributes and, and eternal power just by looking at creation, yet we suppress them and then truth and unrighteousness. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So, and this is basically, Romans 1 is rehashing out what Psalm 19 is saying here. It's saying the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In other words, it's like it's very evident that God has made these things. Day-to-day pours out speech, right? Night-to-night reveals knowledge. So it's like there's, it's so obvious that God is, God's handiwork is evident. It's a signal to something so much more powerful, a supernatural cause and a sentient cause that could, could create such things that are so beyond what we can make. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. In other words, it's talking, so it's, what's interesting here, so David, what he's getting at is that these inanimate objects are speaking God's glory by virtue of their existence, by virtue of their functionality. The hydrological cycle with, you know, like water comes up, gets mist, evaporates, then becomes a cloud, comes down, pours out rain. The fact that that exists in and of itself to sustain life is a testament to God's power but how God can do such a thing. Um, and it says their voice goes out through all the earth. Basically, it's like you have no choice but to accept that this exists. It's so plain and obvious. I'm just re- re- restating myself. Anyways, and, it's, and, and he caps this idea home that it's so plain and obvious when he says, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. That's being the sun. And it's even the sun in all of its glory. It goes up and down. It, it gives us daylight, right? It goes to give us nighttime. And everything is uh, underneath it. And it is impartially, you think about Jesus' uh, justice, that God makes it rain in the just and the unjust. Well, it's same here. There's nothing hidden from the heat. In other words, it's impartial. It's always there. It's, it's consistent. It's sustainable. And uh, you can always use it as a reference point. So all of creation is a reference point to God's majesty, his glory, his power. Um, anyway, so that's the first half here. And that's really important because that really factors into, I think I said this last week, about the gospel. Anyways, I'll continue reading. So Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and the righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is a great reward. So pause there. This is all about, obviously, you know, God's word, his laws. It says here, his law, uh, the law is perfect, uh, the precepts are right, the fear of the Lord is clean and pure is the idea, right? Um, and it keeps going here with the, uh, the, the commandments of the Lord are pure. And so it's saying everything that God says is perfect. And it's right. So what do we have here? Well, we have a difference. We have God's creation, which is directly in your face every single day. If this is not, if the scripture in God's written word is not, then the life is. Dealing your day-to-day life, you you have to cut the grass, right? How does the grass grow? How does God do these things? Um, all these different things. Like that is like part of the on wonder of reality that 
points to God. And also, too, we have his direct explicit revelation, which is his actual voice corroborating what he's done in nature. So you're not left alone here with general revelation is just creation. Special revelation is this part which deals with his actual explicit words. So one, you could say that creation is implicit. It's in creation, but it does not say verbally. Obviously, it does to our how we are uh, intuitively. We know that God exists. But it's not saying God's not writing, I am God and I did these things like in creation itself. Okay. If one's, someone wants to be nitpicky about it. But special revelation is corroborating everything you see in creation. In other words, God is explicitly saying, no, I work through people too. It's not just you are my creation. I work through you as well. So it's, it's one to one. Like the two adamantly directly express God's sovereignty over the world. And what, what, Creation doesn't say, like, so for instance, for instance, general revelation might be like God's omnipotence. He's, he's all powerful. He's all, he's all, uh, all knowing. He's like, you can gather these different things. He's all good, right? You create everything to be good. You can gather these things from creation, but it might not include things like you should sacrifice animals, right? right. So that's in God's special revelations. Like, why is that? It's like, well, you have a sin nature. So God takes it from two different angles, from what's intuitive and what's counterintuitive. Um, to ensure that you fully understand what it means to worship God. Um, now, people obviously will reject general revelation, and by doing, they reject special revelation. And, if, and by rejecting special, you also reject the general. But the point here to be made is that, is that these two factor in together uh, significantly to help the gospel message flourish. That's the whole right. point. You can't have one without the other. God created scripture as it's God breathed, as it says, all right, in Timothy, but he also breathed life into us. And then he also spoke creation to existence. So you naturally have this interwoven, interconnected reality that you can't deny. And if he's speaking through us, right, if he's willing to speak through us and work with us, he's telling us that he's doing this because he loves us, et cetera. So anyways, long story short, because I've been ranting for too long, that's what those general special raven are kind of about. It's yeah. in more detail, but I've uh, ranted for too long. That, no, that's okay. It was really good. I want to add, though, because if yes. we're looking at Psalm 19, my as I've gotten older and had a little bit more experience as a human, <laughs> as a person, and as a Christian, I've come to really appreciate the end of Psalm 19 because it's, okay, you know, the Apostle Paul does this in the New Testament when he gives us lists of uh, what like the sins of the flesh look like. And he starts out with ones that we all agree with, like murder and, um, you know, no, like really bad things. He lines up really bad things. So, so he starts to list and you're like, yeah, 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 that's wrong. Yeah, for sure. They deserve judgment. And then it's like liars, gossips. And you're like, oh, <laughs> oh. So you go from like, yeah, to then sins that pretty much everyone is guilty of. And it hurts a little bit. And I, and, and Psalm 19 also, also does this. And I've come to appreciate this as I've gotten older because it gives us this general revelation where we can know God and, and the nature of God through the world. And then 
it goes on with that with that special revelation like you're talking about with the word of God. And it, it talks about, you know, the law of God is perfect, refreshing the soul. So we're reading this and we're like, well, we have the completed word of God. We have the scriptures today. So yeah, we can be rested. Our souls can be refreshed. And as it goes on, yeah, you know, we can be wise. We can have joy. We can be righteous. We can be seeing instead of blind. Uh, we can fear the Lord properly. Uh, you know, we can have this sweet of the word of God. We can have all these things amazing. We should be perfect Christ followers, right? We should have all the right ideas about the Bible. And then it hits in verse 12. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So there's this acknowledgement that God has revealed himself both generally and specially. And then there's this acknowledgement of human nature, which is prideful. Yes. And it just takes it, take it a step back and recognize that, that we have error, that we have hidden faults. And that we need the spirit of God, not only to reveal these things to us, but also to have mercy on us because of it. So it, it, I've come to really appreciate this as we've got, as I've gotten older, because uh, sometimes we can get really arrogant in our own understanding of who God is or who the Bible is and think that we somehow have a corner on like we we are standing on the only correct right. understanding yes, of point. all the different theologies of God because we we are the only ones who are correctly discerning the word of God. And yeah. there is an inherent danger in that. So yeah, I I I love I love David for this. I love that the Holy Spirit spoke this through him. But yeah. who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Just that recognition that we yes. all have hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, which the ESV says. And that same idea is like, so even though we have all this knowledge, generally, especially as you were saying, it's like, we're not the knowledge pool. No. We're not, right? God is. And so it's like, so God knows my hidden fault. God knows my, my, my sins and what I've done. So Lord, you know, you're in charge here, basically. Yeah. That's what, and that's what's amazing with that. So you have general and special, it's acknowledging that this need of repentance in that. Mm-hmm. So that's what it does. General and special revelation, reveal your repentance. Yeah. But it's also like you look at the world and you see how amazing it's built. And you're like, I'm nothing like this. Like who could do it? It facilitates praise to God. That's right. Like when you know God, God does reveal who he is through the scripture. Yeah. And that's amazing. And it should be a point of of thanks, which is what this psalm is doing. Thank you, That's God, right. for this and forgive me because I pale in comparison to your righteousness. Yeah. Right? So it's, I love it. That's good. Yeah. All right. I got another question for you. Okay. Okay. This, this is regard to basically all of the psalms. It's a viewer question from John Kay. Uh, what is the biblical reaction and attitude we should have when God doesn't answer a prayer or heal someone the way we asked him to? I trust him and believe his ways are higher than mine. But what are some biblical responses we can give to someone who's wrestling with this? Thank you. Yeah, this is this is tough from a when someone is going through something, it's the it's so individualized that I don't want to just counsel you like, oh, you should just tell them this. You should just give them this verse or give them this. And sometimes people have to go through things and they have to come there on their own. Um 
for us as individuals and us as Christians, we need to, we need, how do I want to say this? Um, we know that a positive answer to all our prayers is not going to happen. It's not guaranteed um, because God has an overarching plan. Uh, I mean, we, we just came through Job, right? On last week's program, we talked about Job and it makes me think of um, Job, I think it's Job 13, where, um, <clears throat> let me see here. Yeah, Job cries out, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Right. And, and, and Job's like, no, I will surely defend my ways to his face. He, he wants to, he wants to talk to God face to face. So he's still challenging God, but he says, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Job was still resting on what he knew of the nature of God, that God is just, that God is righteous, that God is merciful, that God is above all things, and that God has a plan. And in the end, that, that, that the nature of God is what would calm Job down, right? It's what, what Job would learn to rest in is that even, even if I never understand, I can trust and believe that God does have a plan moving forward, mm -hmm. an ultimate plan. Um, now, I also want to, uh, it also makes me think of First Thessalonians chapter four. And the Thessalonians were going through great persecution, like much of the uh, early church. Um, <clears throat> and Paul is talking to the church of Thessalonica about Christians who had died. And uh, so First Thessalonians four, verses thir verse 13, he says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Verse 14, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So he, he goes on to talk more about the, the return of Jesus. But for our purposes right now, it's really easy for us to get distracted in our own individual lives because this is our perspective. This is all that we have right now. But what Paul is saying is that this life is not the end. Even if I were to die right now, there is still hope for the future because Christ has risen from the dead. And so even if I sleep in death right now, one day God is going to raise me from the dead and I will be with him forever. He's going to create the new heavens and the new earth. So though we suffer now and though we struggle now, there is an ultimate plan, right? Um, and then also it makes me think of Hebrews 6. Do you have anything? Will I find this, this oh, verse? I, I, Do you have anything that you want to? No, I think you're on a good track. Um Okay, so you can read the, Hebrews 6 and I'll chime in afterwards. Sure. Okay. Um, so the author of Hebrews is talking about a lot of things, but he's talking about God's promises right. to Abraham and, and then through us. Um, and verses 18 and 19 
and 20 says this, God did this by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So this idea that God has given us hope as an anchor for our soul. So what what does an anchor do? If you've ever been out on a boat and you you toss the anchor over, it it stops you from drifting way far away. So you may experience rough waters. You may experience things that you don't want to experience. But at the end of the day, that hope is holding you down. You're not going to float away. You're not going to go off into the ocean and get lost. You have hope as an anchor for your soul. And that hope is in the work of Jesus Christ. Right. So I would say ultimately, um, the only the only way, the productive way that I have found to deal with great disappointment when it comes to unanswered prayer and suffering in our life is to deepen our understanding of what it means to be a Christ follower. That we're in this world, like like Christ said to his disciples, in this world, we're going to have trouble. We're going to. But what is the end game? You know, our suffering can produce character and perseverance and hope. That's in the New Testament as well. But at the end of the day, we are not living just for here. We're living for the consummation of our faith, the consummation of our hope, which will be being risen from the dead in the new heavens and the new earth to be with our God and Father. So that's kind of a long-winded answer. No, that's good. I was actually thinking of that exact line you just said, how perseverance creates character and character hope. Because I I see this question. I'm like, okay, God doesn't answer a prayer or heal someone, which is part of prayer. That's very specific. Um, But through that through that process of suffering, God's developing our character. Mm-hmm. And that goes for anybody. It's not just a matter of someone. We're all appointed once to live and then to die. Yeah. So we're going to have moments of suffering. And God is saying, this suffering is not for nothing. Yeah. There's actually, I'm actually using this, this suffering to refine you into a pearl, basically, mm-hmm. for my glory. And there's something behind that that's so important. Because God wants his goodness and to, to come through you. And he's using that suffering to break through that. So it's not like all, and I think it is, it's in James, where James says, um, don't be quick to lay on hands. Or maybe that's Paul. Uh, and when the suffering of the sick, James says here, um, if anyone's suffering around you, let him pray, right? And then let him call on the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. And then the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up on the last day. And that concept there that Paul, that James is saying, is that it's the ultimate healing is for the final day of the Lord when you'll be raised up. It's not for the immediate healing of your physical body. So it's not saying that you're not praying for those things, but what's the ultimate purpose behind the healing? Mm-hmm. It's to save your soul, mm-hmm. right? What's so good? What's so great if I get the whole world and lose my soul? Clearly, it's like, okay, it's about the, the, your, the resurrection of the body. Now, that's not to say physical healing should not be prayed for. Mm-hmm. Um, but it means that this character being developed through you, I talk about Job's uh, steadfast love, uh, patience and endurance through his trial of suffering, as we just went through, right? Mm. So it's that perseverance produced character, that character hope that we're talking about. And that hope 
It's what you know. Paul calls the the three big: faith, hope, and love. Above all these is love. But the idea here is that hope is what you're grasping on, and that hope is true. It's it's um it's truth itself. It's goodness itself. So I think that when we look at these things about not answering prayer, it comes down to our character that's being developed, as you were saying, but like rejoice in our suffering. There, you know, Paul talks about constantly about rejoicing in your suffering because it's part you're you're participating with Christ. Right. Right? <clears throat> and that's a difficult thing. It's worth pondering about when you're not suffering, so that when times come, you can handle those those times more. But um I think that what's important here, as you were saying, deepening your relationship with God and following God, what does it truly mean to follow God? That's the key here, because that's what God's putting you through. You're going through this for a reason; it's not for nothing. Mm-hmm. And you know, you, you take out the healing part, which is clearly taking up the greatest arm of our conversation. Why doesn't God just answer prayer? Well, you know, God's not a cosmic vending machine. He's not just gonna. You're not just gonna be like, oh, I pray this, boom, and it's not just gonna come out exactly how you want. Um, the, the prayers of God are coming in and through you, essentially from God. They're, they're prayers of from goodness to through goodness to goodness. Um, and so what's important about that is that that's the point of like humility and humbleness and being right with God so that you're praying in the right ways. And I, I think it's just important that we look at these trials of suffering, not like, you know, God is, uh, God hates you or something. Mm-hmm. It's like God is putting you through this to refine you for a good reason. Mm-hmm. And I think that's it's the appropriate attitude to have about it. And and um, yeah, so this naturally flows into the next question, but yeah. but just quickly before that, I I you know ever since I was a kid, you know, in in Sunday school because I grew up in the church in Sunday school, they always um, talk about uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And uh, some people get mad at me that I call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, <laughs> but may I remind you that that's how Daniel refers to them yeah. other than in the first part of his book. But anyway, that's just a side note. That's, that's just like a personal, don't come for me, okay? Come for Daniel, not for me. But in, in Daniel chapter three, it talks about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, um, refusing to bow right. uh, before the idol that Nebuchadnezzar created, right. and he's gonna throw them in the furnace to die. And they, they say to him, you know, I'm going to paraphrase, but it's verse 16 to 18. They say, you know, God is more than able to save us from this fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, know that we're not going to bow to your idol. Yeah. We're not going to, we're not going to forsake God for the sake of our own lives, of our, of our own comfort. And, and that's, that is a major goal. Right. For the life of a Christian, getting to that place where you can truly say, I know that God is able to deliver me from this, but even if he doesn't, man, it makes me emotional because there's been, there's been times in my life where I've had to say that and it's been rough and it is hard. But when you can get to that place, it is a good thing right. to be able to trust in the goodness of God, regardless of what happens to you or your loved ones. Right. Okay. But that kind of naturally segues then into Linda's question where she says, when you pray for healing and your prayer isn't answered, do you keep praying or does that show you don't have faith? Okay. I would say, first of all, I don't know Linda specifically personally. So like a lot of these things are very contextual and circumstantial and personable. Mm-hmm. Like if you know someone, the reason why they're praying, right, that helps in this 
in this in these kind of questions. But it's specifically, do you keep praying? Does that show you don't have faith? Well, sometimes persist. Not sometimes. There's nothing wrong with persistent prayer. Jesus taught that we should be persistent in our prayers. That's exactly right. So there's nothing wrong with persistent prayer. The question is, why are you praying for it? So are you praying for it? You know, because oh, let's say it's um, you you just you just want to pray for them, just something to go your way. So the heart of your prayer could be totally wrong. And you being persistent is useless because the heart of your prayer is for the wrong reasons, mm-hmm. right? So, um, and when it doesn't come to power, not come to power, but it doesn't come true or whatever. To fruition. It doesn't, doesn't, thank you, to fruition. Thank <laughs> I you. was like, that's that word. Thank you. No um, problem. Then somehow you don't have faith. Like, I don't think that's the equivalent. It could just, could just be not a godly prayer. Like I, So I can't always say that you can't, there's no one-to-one as if you, if you, you don't have faith if you don't keep praying. I, I, I don't think those are equivalencies. <clears throat> no. Um, well, well, and in fact, in Luke 18, when, when Jesus is teaching about uh, praying persistently and he does the parable of the persistent widow, um, listen to this, uh, Luke 18, verses 6 to 8. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. Uh, However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So Jesus equates persistent prayer to faith in God's goodness. Right. Not the opposite. So I I, I think a lot of, in, in, in some circles... They teach that you you pray a prayer and then you don't pray it again because you have to have faith that it's already done. I never heard of that, but that's interesting. Yeah. You pray for healing and then you just believe that God is doing it and it's done. And in that way, it kind of strong arms God into actually doing it. That's not what it's taught, but that's essentially what's happening, right? Right, right, right. right. Pray for healing and then just believe and God will give it to you. But that's a perversion of the teaching of Christ. Um, when Christ does say, you know, he heals based on the, the, the belief of people in the goodness of God, but that doesn't mean that you have to force yourself to believe that God has already done something that he may or may not have done. And, and I think, and I think that it's pretty powerful here that in Luke 18, Check me on this. Read it for yourself. When Jesus is advocating for persistently praying for God's deliverance, he equates praying persistently with faith because you believe in the goodness of God to hear you and answer you. Um, Also, when it comes to healing, just in case that's the context that you're coming from, Linda, um, a lot of times in those circles, circles as well, it's believed that it is always God's will to physically heal, right? There are tons of biblical examples to show that that's just not the case, that Christians do get sick. Christians sometimes die of illness. I mean, we think of Paul and his thorn in the flesh that he talks about, right. um, but also one that people always overlook which I think is interesting because in those same circles, they really, generally speaking, in my experience, in my experience, also really elevate the Old Testament prophets, specifically Elijah and Elisha. But what's really ironic about that to me is that though Elisha was able to do these amazing miracles, and though Elisha's dead bones brought someone back to life right. when they were thrown in his tomb, in uh, 2 Kings 13, 
verse 14, King Jehoash of Israel sends a messenger to Elisha. And this is what the Bible records about Elisha. Now, Elisha had been suffering from the illness from which he died. Right. Elisha, this amazing prophet of God that got a double helping of the spirit of Elijah. Right. Died from a physical illness. God could easily have healed him from that. Yes. And yet he chose not to. Yeah. So um, we need to think carefully and biblically about what it means to have faith in God, what it means to believe in God, and what God has promised to us in terms of physical healing. And it's pretty yeah. obvious from the Bible that he does not always physically deliver right now. Right. He will always. We will be healed in the new heavens and the new earth. He's going to wipe every tear from our yes. eyes. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I, you're spot on. And I don't see a problem, again, with uh, you just keep praying. It, it really depends on the heart of where you're coming from, what it boils down to. In these, and if I assume and say it's for mm-hmm. the right reasons, of course, because it builds character, it builds heart. And like yeah. I, I hear, I've heard of um, uh, some pastors kind of like mock the idea of uh, like, you know, like all oh, the grandmother praying on her hands and knees and there's like, uh, oh, what's it called? Like markings like on the ground. Away. Like she's worn away in the ground from praying on her knees. And I'm like. I've never heard that mocked before. Oh, I'm like, man. That's terrible. I know. And I'm like, you're mocking this? Like that's a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, persistence is Persistence is key. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Because they're mocking it because it's useless because God's got it all under control. So they're mocking the functionality behind it. And it's one of those things where I'm just like, it completely misses the point of what it means to follow Christ. Like, even if it doesn't come true and you have those persistent prayers, is God not transforming you through those prayers? Are you then, by the end of it, have, even if they were all for naught, have you not, if if you're truly sincerely praying, even if, if, even if it's for the wrong thing, because it's not in God's will, will God not transform you in that prayer? Will God Mm -hmm. not speak to you to help you and give you discipline or, um, to, to disciple you through this process so that you realize, okay, maybe it wasn't the right prayer, but I learned something through this. So God's shaping character through this process, regardless of your intentions or not, because we know we're fallible. If you're mm-hmm. repentant, you're like, look, I don't know, as David prayed, I don't know for sure. I want, like, who, who yeah. knows when some of their family members sick, I'm going to pray for them. To, you're going to pray for them to get better. Yeah. You, of course you want them to get better. And, and, and sometimes it might not happen. Because it wasn't God's will, but God's not going to hold that against you. No, and 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 there may even come a time we're not. I, we're also not saying you have to pray for this same physical healing over and over and over and over and over again, or you're not faithful. We're also not making a rule in that direction. Oh, right. Because there may come a time when, as you're praying, you you believe that God has revealed to you that it's time to stop praying. Because the Apostle Paul, he's very clear about the thorn in his flesh, where he says, "I asked God to take it away from me three times, and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you.'" Right. You're, this this is it. Yeah. So move on now, right? Um, so, sometimes that happens. Sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, and Paul also talks about ceaseless prayer. So it's it's a relationship thing. You're praying. Yeah. Through the, the Holy Spirit speaks to us through wordless groans. Yeah. You're praying with the Spirit <clears throat> and through the Spirit uh, for God's righteousness and God's kingdom to abound. Yes. So because of that, yeah. you're naturally going to get, there's no legal, oh, do it this way. Do it, It's not regimented. It's not like a, a system you can kind of plug into kind of thing. And the best thing that you can do, the best thing in my experience that you can do is if you start getting upset about these issues, if people start telling you that you, you know, you need to, you you know, start, if people start telling you different things about it that's making you worry, well, maybe I don't have enough faith or maybe I shouldn't be doing this, bring it to God 
and yeah. say, God, this is what I've been told. I don't know what is true. I just want to follow you. Please help me find out what's true. Right. Um, bring it to God. Be honest with him. You know, David, I believe it's Psalm 52, talks about pouring out your heart before God. That is a good thing to do. Right. So I think that's a good, good thing to do. All right. So what are some ways, Matlock, that that we can, this is our big question. We're just going to discuss it a little bit. Sure. We've, we've gone over time a little bit. So Always over time. Over, right? Always over time. Just a little bit. Some ways that we can utilize Psalms in our Christian life. Well, okay. So I think one way, one thing we can, we can do more mm-hmm. is have the Psalms part of our worship services. That's one thing I think we can do more. I just don't see that often. Um, then there's some Psalms you just can't. Imprecatory Psalms, which we'll get into, I'm sure, another week from now. Yes. Um, but uh, there's some Psalms, I think, that are worth having and, and singing praise with. But I think the Psalms, is that also part of our liturgies or part of our, um, which most most high church liturgies do have, they'll have a Psalm or a proverb before they speak and even after they speak, right? Um, yeah, there's even personal liturgy, I know, in the Anglican church that, has personal scheduling of prayer and reading of Psalms every day. Yes, and that's a wonderful thing. So I think that there's absolutely room for that. Um, it's a really good discipline. Yes. Yeah, so I think that there's tons of, like, you, my dad listens to the Psalms mm-hmm. all the time, like all religiously. Time. <laughs> Anyways, but. Yeah, it yeah, keeps his mind calm trying, and focused. Yeah. That's what he says. It yeah, keeps that's him right. calm. It reminds him of who God is. That is a really good thing. Yeah, it's a very good thing. I think, okay, here's what I will say. In terms of this idea of listening to the psalms religiously or doing it out of repetition, there's nothing wrong with repetition. Some people think it yeah. creates manufactured, like a manufactured legalism, and it's just not true. There's just something to being consistent and doing it on a regular basis. Look, there were psalms that there were psalms that my dad said all the time when I was a kid, and he even like uh, bribed me to memorize when I was a child. He bribed <laughs> okay. me to memorize some of the psalms, right. and I mean that's you know. Some people would be like, oh, that's a terrible thing to do. It doesn't mean anything to them. And that's true. At that time, it didn't really, it meant, it meant um, a book or uh, a a daddy-daughter date or uh, a candy bar or something like that. That's what it meant for me back then. Okay. I'm going to be honest. But as I grew up, meaning came to those words. Right. So repetition and memory, just because you don't, you're not reaping all the benefits of it now, eventually... You start to connect the dots that's when right. you need it, or when you go through an experience, and you're like, "Oh, that's like this." Right. That what? Oh, that when 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 David said, "You know, pour out your heart before God," that's what he meant. Right. That you know, so it's really good. Also, okay. Also, any moms out there, or I mean, I, this applies to more than just moms. But um, when I first became a mom, I my children, this latest, this our latest son is the best sleeper that we've ever had. It's fantastic. We're sleeping a little bit. Yeah. Um, sometimes. 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 But our, <laughs> our our first son, like he's five now and he's just starting to sleep through the night and not all the time. He was just, he just has such a hard time with sleep. And so I wasn't sleeping for years. And so there's days, you know, when you're exhausted and you're trying to work and you're trying to take care of things in your life and you just the idea of taking out the scripture and reading it is just very, very, very daunting. So I definitely utilize the Psalms as kind of soft scripture to help me when I'm having those days where I I want to keep the discipline of having the Bible in my daily life. But I know that day if I were to pull out and read my regular reading, I am not going to comprehend it. So I could do that just for the sake of discipline. I could take it out and just read it and know that I'm not really in comprehending, right. or I could take it out and read a psalm. 
And I gotta gotta be honest. Some days I take it out and read a psalm. <laughs> gotta be honest. So well, yeah, good. there's lots of different ways I think that yeah, I psalms think so. are utilized. Okay. Now. Okay. Is there anything else that you want to add? No, I think I'm good. Because I would like to know, I am curious how you all incorporate the Psalms in your Christian walk, in your Christian life. So if you would be so kind as to pop them down in the comment section below, I am so curious to find out how you utilize the the uh, the Psalms in your daily life. Is there something you want to know? We're good? No, we're good. Okay. Subscribe. Okay. Oh yeah, also, if you are watching this and you haven't subscribed, please subscribe to the channel. The button is somewhere, it's a bell. It's, just, or it's a subscribe button and then there's a bell. You know what you're doing, you're on YouTube. Please subscribe to our channel, it helps out. It helps other people see it. So yeah, until next week, happy reading, happy studying, and we'll see you there. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.